In her book, Don't Make Me Count to Three, Ginger Hubbard writes, We should expect instant obedience from our children. Teach them that God wants them to obey all the way, right away, and with a happy heart. As soon as my children could talk, I would ask them, How does God want you to obey? They would respond, All the way, right away, and with a happy heart. Hubbard's phrase is a catchy phrase, and it's biblical. And while it's written to serve uh, or to equip parents to serve their children in remembering how to obey God, I think it does more than that. It also serves as a way for Christian adults to remember how we, as children of God, are to obey our Heavenly Father in a way that's pleasing to Him. You see, man's joyful obedience is an important theme throughout the scriptures. It's found throughout the scriptures because it's how God created man and woman to live in joyful obedience to him. But as we all know too well, we don't do this as we are supposed to. And as a result, our disobedience comes with consequences. Well, this morning, we continue with our series in Philippians, and our passage for today teaches us how children of God are called to live in light of our relationship with God in this fallen world, the purpose of it, and how we accomplish it. My hope is that we would be encouraged this morning and that we would leave here with a desire to live out these truths for the glory of God. And if you're taking notes this morning, the main idea is this. God, as God's children, work out your salvation, obey gladly, stand firm in the gospel. As God's children, work out your salvation, obey gladly, and stand firm in the gospel. And this main idea will serve as our outline for this morning. These are timeless truths that we find in our text today. And I invite you this morning to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, and we will be reading verses 12 through 18. And if you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles in front of you, you can find that on page 981. Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your, salva- your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, You should be glad and rejoice with me. 
If you're joining us for the first time or have missed some of the previous sermons in this series, we have seen that the letter to Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Philippians while he was imprisoned in Rome for his proclamation of the gospel. And Paul penned this letter for a few reasons. One, to express his gratitude for the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. Once again, the Philippians had sent financial help to him. And this time they had sent one of their very own members, Epaphroditus, to serve Paul while he was on house arrest. Paul also wrote this letter to give them an update about his circumstances in Rome. He was experiencing all kinds of suffering for Christ. But Paul continued to rejoice because his suffering was actually serving to advance the gospel. And then in his letter, he turns from his circumstances to the Philippian circumstances. And as always, Paul was concerned about their faith, about their progress in the faith. And Paul knew that they were also suffering. They were facing resistance from outside the church, from non-believers who opposed their message, and also inside the church. There were some church members who weren't getting along, and so there was disunity from inside. So in chapter 1, verse, verses 27 through the end of our section today, 2.18, we have a section that deals with how the Philippians were to live as children of God in a fallen world as they experienced suffering. And so this background brings us to our passage for today, which answers the question, how are God's children to live in a fallen world? And the first thing that we see in our text is, Christian, as a child of God, work out your salvation. And we see this in verses 12 through 13. If you look at our passage there in verse 12, you see that it begins with, therefore. What follows the therefore is a result of what came before, which is, as I mentioned earlier, tied to this section that starts in verse 127, where it reads, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is where Paul transitions after explaining that his pending trial could result in death. He was desiring and trusting in the Lord that he would be freed from his situation so that he could return to the Philippians. But there was a real, um, there was a real possibility of him actually not making it and dying. So Paul writes in verse 27, just one thing. Whether I come or whether I go, let your life be one that adorns the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. And then he points the Philippians to the greatest motivation and the realities that they possessed, which was God the Father had highly exalted Jesus Christ giving him a name that is above all names, a name with all authority, at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. 
This Jesus displayed the greatest act of humility by joyfully submitting himself to the Father's plan, by coming into this world to serve us, by laying down his life so that we would have life in him. So in verse 12, in chapter 2, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed from the time you were saved, in your response to the gospel and in your partnership in the gospel, obey, obey even more now that I am absent. Or in other words, because you have received the grace of God in salvation and the peace of God that results from salvation and a right relationship with him, therefore, and here comes the main command of our text, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, at first glance, we might be tempted to think or ask, what does work out your salvation mean? This text has commonly been misinterpreted as work for my salvation, as in work for my salvation in order to be made right with God. But this is an incorrect way of understanding what Paul writes Because if you look at the verse, it does not say work for your salvation. To read it that way would go against everything that the Bible teaches and even what Paul writes in chapter 1, verse 6, where he writes, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So it is God who started the work, the good work of salvation in them by drawing the Philippians to himself and drawing all Christians to himself. And it is God who will finish it. And we saw that in Romans, that trying to work for our salvation, it fails because apart from Christ, we are all sinners in desperate need of a savior. So what does the text say? Well, if you look there at verse 12, it says, work out your own salvation, meaning Exercise your gift of salvation. It is an active response, not a passive one. I remember when I first signed up for a gym membership at Bally's Total Fitness. And upon my signing up and receiving membership, I gained access to not just one gym, but all of them. But there was one catch that should have been obvious. I wasn't going to get fit unless I exercised my membership as a club member. I needed to be active by going and working this out. It's what gym members do. Well, in a similar way, Christians are called to exercise their gift of salvation. Work out your salvation is another way of saying actively obey 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 as a lifestyle, as a response to what Christ has done. You see in verse 12, as you have always obeyed, so the Philippians were already obeying, so now much more. Continue obeying. In Ephesians, Paul puts it this way, and we saw this this morning with Steve as he was teaching us. At one point, Paul writes to the Ephesians, you were separated from God without hope because of sin. 
But now through Christ, you have been reconciled and formed part of his body. And because of these truths, Christians can now respond to the reality that we have been made alive in Christ and can now obey God in a way that pleases him. So in other words, Paul is saying here, get to it. Work out your salvation. Don't be passive. And we're also told how we're to do it. We read here, we're supposed to do it with fear and trembling. And this has to do with an attitude of humility that not only acknowledges God as God and that we are not God, but also one that submits to God's majesty. So fear here is not referring to terror because remember, in Christ, we have peace with God. Instead, this is a reverential awe that is concerned about displeasing God. It is to have a high regard for God. It is to have a desire to honor Him through our obedience. This fear and trembling is seen, our, is seen in our willful submission to Him. And we're also given giving a motivation. The reason that you and I can do this is, if you look here at the text, verse 13, it is because God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I don't know about you, but this is extremely encouraging to me because I always have desires to do good things. And if I could show you my mental list of all the good things that I want to do, it would be a a long list. The problem is that I may have these desires, but I don't always end up doing them. Well, brothers and sisters, here we see that God is actively working in you, not only working in your mind and heart, Um, He is working in you the desire to do good. He gives you the ability to carry out these good desires. So, First Baptist Church, I'd like you to take a few seconds to think about any of the good things that you see in your life that are responses of obedience to God. For example, if you lead here in any way, all of those desires and those actions in your life are the results of God's work in you. Or in your home or workplace, as you sacrificially serve your spouse or your children or your co-workers for their good, that's a result of God's work in you. So we have these motivations to obey, to work out our salvation as a response to our salvation. Christ has given his life for us to save us and bring us into God's family. And God is at work in us, working in us so that we would obey. And now that we've seen how we're to live as God's children, we're given two specific applications for what it means to work out your salvation, which brings us to our next point. As God's children, we're to work out 
our salvation. But we're also told to obey gladly. And we see this in verses 14 and 15. And we get this from verse 14, where we read, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. This means that we obey in everything that God says in his word. In all the things that he says that we should do. And in the things that he says that we should not do as revealed in his word. Obedience to God's word is an ongoing response of a heart that has been transformed by the gospel, which sees God rightly for who he is and responds joyfully by submitting to him. In our passage, we see specifically that obedience to God looks a certain way and does so for a specific purpose. It's interesting that Paul says that obeying in all things is to be done specifically without grumbling or disputing. That is to say, without complaining and without questioning God's trustworthiness. And to help us understand this, Paul looks to an example in, or examples in the Old Testament to show us the severity of grumbling and disputing. So while keeping your place in Philippians, I want us to look at two passages, one in Exodus 16 and the second in Numbers 14. So if you can turn there with me, Exodus 16 and Numbers 14. In Exodus 16, Paul takes us to the people of Israel, to give us an example. And here in Exodus 16, verses, we're going to read different verses. So 16, verse, verse 2 and 3, we read, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly, with hunger. Verse 6, 7, and 8. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he had heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And in verse 11, And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So here we're giving this example of Israel grumbling because of their hunger, because of food. And we read that they grumbled against their leaders, all while forgetting about God. And while they grumbled, God heard. 
And God responded. If you look there at the next chapter, Exodus 17, we find that they grumble because of thirst and because of water. 17 verses 2 and 3. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? So here they quarreled or they disputed with Moses, demanding water and thus testing the Lord. They had forgotten what the Lord had done for them by saving them from Egypt and doing great signs and wonders. And they did so to the point that they began to question whether God was with them or not. Or in other words, is God trustworthy? Can you imagine that? After everything that God had done for them. One more passage, Numbers 14. Numbers 14, 1 through 10. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel, and Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes, and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. So coming to the land of, that God had promised his people, is the Israel and its spies had returned. And they began to grumble against their leaders saying, we're not going to go in there. They're going to kill us. We can't take this land. Even though God had already been promising and fulfilling his promises. And their grumbling and their disputing led to them wanting to overthrow their leaders, even to the point of wanting to kill them. But look at God's response in verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? 
their ongoing grumbling was an affront to the trustworthiness of God's character. And it sounds a lot like the serpent back in the garden. Did God really say? Is God really trustworthy? And the seriousness of grumbling and disputing is this, that because of this, None of the original generation that saw God's salvation entered the land that God had promised them. They all died. Only the young generation received mercy. The old generation proved themselves to not be worthy of being God's people due to their actions, which revealed their hearts. In 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 10, um, don't turn there, but I'll just summarize it for you. Paul writes that these things took place as examples for us so that we will not desire evil things like them. And he writes, let us not test Christ as they did. Don't complain as some of them did. These things were written for our instruction. So we find that there's a seriousness to this grumbling and this disputing. Because from this, we learn that they were grumbling with each other. Israel was ungrateful for their salvation from Egypt, from the hands of their enemies, and it showed up in their grumbling with their leaders. Israel, along with eight of the spies, disputed with their leaders, tried to overthrow them and even kill them. They grumbled ultimately with God. The Lord heard everything they said, and he says that it was all against him, questioning his faithfulness to his promises. And Paul uses this as an example to contrast with the Philippians. Of these Old Testament passages, we read in Deuteronomy 32, 5, They, Israel, have dealt corruptly with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. It's the same thing that Paul writes here. To the Philippians, Paul says, You are not like them. Therefore, do all things without grumbling or disputing as children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. The reason for this is that Obeying gladly without grumbling and disputing is so that they would be an effective witness to the unbelieving world. In 2.15, it reads, You are in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see that? There's a correlation between the attitude of our hearts that are manifested in our speech when we suffer and our effectiveness in being faithful witnesses to God, to his character. And to better understand this, we can look to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Um, and I'll summarize it for us once again uh, in chapter 5 where he uses salt and light to help us understand more. Jesus compares salt that loses its taste 
and light that is hidden as being ineffective or useless. Regarding light, Jesus says about you, Christian, and all Christians, you are the light of the world. People light a lamp not to hide it, but to put it on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So if we read this with our passage here in Philippians, we get a complete picture. Paul writes, Work out your salvation by obeying in all things, by doing good works, without grumbling and disputing, so that you may be, or so that you would grow in blamelessness and innocence, or in other words, in your sanctification, in this crooked and twisted generation, as children of God who shine as lights in this world. Our glad obedience in all things produces light in a spiritually dark and fallen world. This world is characterized by folks who complain about everything. And when we suffer for doing good or as a result of the fall, and we don't grumble and we respond differently with praise and with trusting God, we shine in the darkness. So how does this bring God glory? Well, it does so in a few ways. When we suffer well, or when we obey gladly without grumbling, it proclaims truth in the world that stands against truth. It produces light in the world that prefers darkness, that their works would not be exposed. But also, to use the language that Paul uses, when we obey without grumbling, we tell the world that God is a Father who is good and trustworthy. We obey because we love Him and His commandments are good for us. So no matter what difficulties we experience, it shows that we value and trust Him more than anything that this world offers. I was surprised last night as I was reflecting on these truths at how this played out. Erica and I, uh, my wife, we went out to a, to a movie theater to watch a PG-13 movie that she was looking forward to watching. And after driving 30 minutes to get to the movie theater and waiting about 30, 40 minutes to find a parking spot, we finally got there and we made it to the room just as the movie was starting. And five minutes into the movie, I heard the name of God being blasphemed about ten times in the first five minutes. And my spirit began to feel uneasy. And I leaned over to Erica and I, and I, and I told her, have you noticed that they're blaspheming the name of God a lot, like more than I've ever heard in any film. And she nodded. And she asked if I wanted to leave. And I nodded and I said no, thinking that it would stop. So we stayed a few more minutes. And I heard it 
no lie, at least 15 more times. So I counted it about 25 times at least in this short period of time. And by that point, Erica leaned over to me and said, I think we should go. And this was something, a movie that she wanted to watch. We thought it was going to be a PG-13 movie. It was going to be a good movie. So we walked out. By God's grace, he was working this in us. And as we walked out, part of me felt, oh, Erica was looking forward to watching this movie. Is she going to be bummed? Is she going to be upset? Is she going to grumble? But she didn't. We were in unity, feeling the same thing, the same tug in our heart. Like, I remember when I was not saved and somebody would talk about my mom, and I'd get upset. Like, you don't talk about somebody's mama, <laughs> right? And here the name of God was being used as a cuss word. And in unity, we, we got up. And as soon as we walked out of the room, I walked to one of the ushers and I asked where I could find the, the refund booth. And he asked, oh, yeah, like, well, what's the problem? And I said, I hesitated. But then I said, you know what, man? The name of God is being blasphemed quite a lot in this film. I didn't expect that in this movie. And he looked at me like, I've never heard anybody walk out of a movie because of that. And he said, yeah, yeah, man, go upstairs and um, we can't give you a refund, but we can give you vouchers for a different movie. And so we walked up and we got up to the top and we, we, we got to the other usher. And when I got up there, he asked me like, hey, man, yeah, uh, you want to return your tickets? Why, what's wrong? Did you not find parking? Is it because you, you made it late? And I said, no, actually, you know what, man? The name of God is being blasphemed, and I, I don't feel comfortable with that. It's pretty offensive. And he looked at me, and he wanted to laugh. Like, are you serious? Two different responses. Both opportunities to shine as light as we stood for truth, by God's grace, standing firm for what we believe that God's name should not be taken in vain. The first man was able to see truth being lived out, how God calls us to not take his name in vain. The second one laughed, and he gave us our our other passes. But by God's grace, there was a unity there where we were able to shine by God's grace And that will work out for God's glory here presently. And I'm praying that this light that shone would be used in the first man's um, heart to drive him to want to think, why would these guys do that for the name of God? And so what we find here is not a question of, will I encounter the temptation to grumble and dispute? Rather, we will face the question, How will I respond when this happens? Christian, in this world you will come across situations or circumstances that will tempt you to grumble and complain. It may come in the form of losing a job or not having the job or position that you want. It may come in the form of losing a loved one or not having the spouse that you desire. It may come in the form of an accident on the road or at work. Or maybe 
You don't like the way that the leaders in the church are doing things. Maybe you don't like the styles of songs that we sing here at church. Maybe it's the drive that you make on Sunday mornings to come to church. Or it may be the fact that there's an evening service, a second service, so now you feel like your Sunday is ruined. When you encounter these situations or circumstances, how will you respond? Let's not forget that grumbling and disputing is a sin, a sin that we many times make maybe believe that is it's insignificant. But in reality, it is a significant sin. As we see, the people in, of Israel didn't inherit the land because of their grumbling and disputing, revealing what was in their heart. And so this sin can be revealed in disunity in the church and causing others to stumble and follow along. It can reveal an ungrateful heart. And ultimately, it's an attack on God's character. To obey and to grumble. We can obey and grumble as well. But then that makes obedience all about duty, not love. Grumbling and disputing create disunity in God's people, which then speak lies about God and how he calls his people to live. And it begins to hinder the light that's supposed to shine. We see that these aren't small sins. God hears everything and he takes these things personally. Instead, let us respond with faith by trusting the Lord. Trusting that he is at work. Working all things together for your good. Because Paul writes in Romans, it's for those that love God. Those that obey God because they fear him reverentially. Because they want to please him. So this takes us to, we've seen that we're called to work out our salvation We're called to obey gladly without grumbling or disputing. And the third thing that we see is that God's children are to stand firm in the gospel. Stand firm in the gospel. This standing firm in the gospel is what we read here. Stand firm or hold fast to the word of life. It means to stay put or to hold firm to the gospel. Now, have you thought about what kind of gospel or what kind of word of life it is that we're called to stand firm in? The kind of gospel that we're called to not move out of or from, but to stand on? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a gospel of power. It is a gospel that gives life. It is the gospel through which God saved us and gave us new life. And it is this gospel that will enable us to continue making it until the end if we stand in it. 
It gives us confidence for the day of Christ because the gospel is advancing. And this is what Paul has been writing about in his letter. I rejoice because of the advancement of the gospel. The gospel is advancing and it advances when you obey without grumbling. Even when you suffer and you rejoice because you trust in God. You trust that He is working all things together for your good and for His glory. His gospel will not fail. And this requires our obedience, our active response as an acceptable sacrifice to God. The implication of this is that we are to obey in all things. And this obedience may even result in laying down our life. This is what Paul writes in verse 17. Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, it may cost us our lives. But we find in this letter that this is the path that Christ walked. This is the path that Paul walked on. And this is the path that all Christians are called to follow. And this is what we are called to do. We're called to stand firm in this gospel. Because on the day of Christ, whether we experience death in this world, it is this word of life that will resurrect us with Christ. And on his day, Christ will return and he will examine our works. He will examine our obedience and he will reward us so god once again will prove himself faithful in christ's exaltation on that day therefore we are called to obey so that through our obedience we would be an effective witness through our unity we would point to god's trustworthiness and we are to obey for god's glory We can rejoice in these things, in all things, because God will accomplish his plan. So Christian, I want to ask you, how are you living in light of this reality that this exalted King Jesus who will return, are you obeying by standing firm in the gospel? Are you turning to this gospel that has given you life? as the source for your obedience, as your source to rejoice in all things, in all suffering? Are you turning to this word of life as the antidote for your grumbling? If you're visiting us today and you're not a Christian, we're glad that you're here. We praise God that you're here. I want to ask you, What are you banking your hope on? What are you standing on? Is it your money? Is it your good works? On the day of Christ, his gospel will advance and he will examine everything that we've done. And the only way to be made right with him is through this gospel of life, by repenting of our sins, by repenting of rejecting God, and turning to him by trusting in Christ and his life, death, and resurrection. God offers free forgiveness, just as he did to these Philippians and he did to the Christians that sit here this morning. 
And so, if you find yourself and identify yourself to be someone who grumbles, who disputes or complains, the antidote to to this is look to Christ, the one who obeyed perfectly, who gave his life on a cross without grumbling, who joyfully sacrificed his life. And let that warm your heart so that you would be grateful to God for his grace. Because if you look at verse 1, the way that Paul begins his letter, he writes, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is this grace of salvation that we've received that should lead us not to complain and to grumble, but to realize that we are doing a lot better than we should be. That we have been forgiven of all of our sins, that we have been united to God and we are in Christ and we will be raised with him. The antidote is to look to Christ and to, to be grateful and to praise. So rather than grumbling, praise God for his work in you. Praise God for his patience with you. Praise God for his forgiveness. But over all of that, praise God for Christ who gave his life for you. So in conclusion, Hubbard gives us a catchy motivation or a phrase that motivates us and reminds us of how we are to live in this fallen world. As Christians, we're to obey right away, all the way, with a happy heart. And we do this by working at our salvation, obeying gladly and standing firm in the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We praise you for being this good father. For being a father who has loved us so much that you have gone to great lengths to save us, to draw us to yourself, to be patient with us when we have grumbled and complained and have not trusted you. We thank you that in all of this, You have been patient and you have been revealing yourself in your word, in our lives, time after time again, helping us understand that you are trustworthy, that we should obey you because you are good and we can trust your good promises. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for the times that we have displeased you with our grumblings and our disobedience. We pray that you would work in us a joyful heart that responds to your work in Christ in the gospel so that we would be shining lights in this fallen world, so that we would be able to testify that the reason that we don't grumble is because you have saved us, is because you have forgiven us and we are in Christ. We praise you for all of your work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.